Tim Coyle. Tim and Mary, uh, this past year, they came from Delaware. Tim is a former pastor. They retired to the Williamsburg area and jumped in in their involvement here at Grace Covenant. So it may seem like they've been here longer than they have because uh, of their participation. Some of you are participating in the Bible study, a study of Romans, that uh, Tim is doing at his own pace as opposed to the pace that Camper and I are setting for him. Um, but an opportunity to dig in deeper. And so while he probably won't do a commercial for it, I, I will. Um, I'm sure there's room in that study when it resumes uh, in the beginning of the new year. Uh, I won't say much more about Tim because he probably knows the details better than I do. And so I'll let him introduce himself. But Tim, come and share the word with us. Thank you, Dennis. I thought before I began my message this morning, I would say just a word about our experience of coming here to Williamsburg. We actually moved here this past March, and for the year before that, Mary retired uh, a year before that, and the day after she retired, we started remodeling the kitchen and updating the bathrooms and doing other things around the house that had to be done. And to sum up, that year turned out to be a nightmare. If anything could go wrong, it did. But through all of that, we didn't lose our conviction that God wanted us to move to Williamsburg. But I couldn't help but think, Lord, I hope you've got something really special there for us after what we've been going through. Now, we had been coming to Williamsburg for about 17 years averaging somewhere between two and three trips a year. Uh, some of you know uh, Gene and Steve Louie. One time Steve said to me, you guys have all the signs, you're going to end up moving here. And, and by the way, I don't know how many of you know this, but uh, Mary actually grew up with Steve and Gene in, in and around Chinatown in New York City. And Jean had an important role in Mary coming to know the Lord, even. So we've been longtime friends. So we, we knew we would enjoy Colonial Williamsburg. That was the reason that we were moving here. But what we didn't realize was how much we would enjoy the city that has grown up around Colonial Williamsburg. This community is an absolutely wonderful place to live. Warm friendly, so many things to do, we couldn't ask for a better place to live. But by far, the greatest blessing in our coming to Williamsburg has been Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church. The way you all have reached out to us, received us, loved us, made us feel uh, like we are a part of you, this has truly become our church home a place to worship God, a place to be fed, a place to grow, a, a place to serve the Lord and minister, and a place for rich fellowship. Um, you all have been just absolutely incredible, more than we could ever have expected. But I'm not looking at Williamsburg through rose-colored glasses. I know that there are many spiritual needs in Williamsburg. And so I would ask you to continue to let your lights shine 
so that the men and women and boys and girls of Williamsburg will see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have this Lord's Day when we can come before you and worship you. We thank you for your grace that has been poured out upon this church. And we pray now that as we turn our thoughts to you and open your word, that your spirit would minister to us. That, Father, it is what the spirit would lead me to say that would, I hope, be etched on the hearts of those who are here this morning. Bless this time now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are. Another Christmas has come and gone. And I'm wondering this morning, because of that, do you feel a little down? Do you feel a little like, have you lost the Christmas spirit to one degree or another? Now, I'm not talking about the kids. Uh, they have enough toys to keep them happy for a couple months, or at least, maybe practically speaking, for a couple weeks. And I'm thinking about the rest of us. Do you still feel the Christmas spirit, or now that Christmas Day has passed, has it kind of gone by the wayside? Well, it doesn't have to be that way, and in fact, it is not what God intends. To have Christmas spirit extend beyond Christmas Day, though, there are three changes we need to make in how we think about this Christmas season. Now, note one thing. I'm not talking about anything to do with how we perceive Christmas and what we think about the meaning of Christmas. I'm convinced that the vast majority of you here fully understand its significance and its importance. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about our celebration of the Christmas season. And the first change we need to make in our thinking is we need a new paradigm about the Christmas season. Now, if you would, please, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. And no, I'm not switching anything. We're still going to go back to Matthew chapter 2. But my first point is something that is very pertinent to this message. Uh, but it actually comes from somewhere else in the text. From Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? You probably haven't given a lot of thought to this, but if you stop and think about it, the way we look at Christmas is as though it's much like a mountaintop. And to get to the mountaintop, you have to climb the mountain. And the climbing the mountain would be comparable to our Advent season. As Christmas approaches, as we look at Christmas, we are getting closer and closer and closer to Christmas, just as you would get closer and closer to a mountaintop as you climb the mountain. But then once you reach the mountaintop, 
there's nothing left to do but to come back down. So if that's our paradigm for Christmas, it's no surprising, it's not at all surprising that we lose the Christmas spirit. But what if, what if we would look at Christmas not as a mountaintop, but as a plateau, which means we climb up to the mountain, but because it's a plateau, we continue there for a period of time. We linger there. Therefore, we continue to enjoy the Christmas season. Now, is there support for that scripturally? Indeed, there is. But before we get to that, I'd like to talk about how we have come to acquire this paradigm. It actually comes from the secular, commercial world. As you well know, for the vast majority of retail stores, their best time of year is Christmas. And the reason for that is because of our tradition of giving gifts in connection with the celebration of Christmas. And they are more than happy to provide for us all the gifts we would like to buy. And then the radio stations begin to catch on with what's going on because all the advertisements are crouched in Christmas uh, this time of year. And the radio stations then begin to play Christmas music. TV programs begin to show Christmas shows. And then someone got the bright idea. You know, we could even increase our profits if the Christmas season started earlier. So now we are all the way back to beginning Christmas, even before Thanksgiving, and even into the last part of the month of October. Now this, of course, is driven by the desire that uh, stores would like you to buy early and buy often. But what happens the day after Christmas? You'll search the radio dial to find a Christmas song, whereas before they were everywhere. And on television, all the Christmas shows have gone away. Is it not surprising that we begin to lose the Christmas spirit? Because what we were taking our clues from, which is what we see in the secular world, has all gone away. Now, that happens for two reasons. Number one, no more money is to be made after Christmas. But number two, people have heard these songs for so long now, everybody's tired of them and they're glad to just stop. That's what happens when we take our cues from the secular world. Now, I am not attacking the retail institution. It is not a spiritual institution, it is an economic institution. And they are simply doing what they intend to do, which is to make a profit. And there's nothing wrong with that. We should all be thankful for the free market system, which has caused this country to be the most prosperous in the history of the world and has given us a higher standard of living than anywhere else on the globe. But to allow it to dictate to us 
our, under, our spiritual understanding and practices is where we need to draw a line. Now, the reason that I turn first to Romans chapter 12, verse 2, I think you can probably begin to see. The word that we have here, do not be conformed to this world, in the original Greek is a word that means to fashion yourself after another's pattern. It especially refers to outward appearances, manners, and practices. And for us today, this has become to such an extent that we don't even realize there's an alternative. And then the word transform means to take on an outer form that is consistent with your inner self. And for a Christian, of course, the inner self is the new believer. And how is, how is it that our minds are to be renewed? Well, certainly by the word of God, by scripture. Now, having said that, we talk a lot about the inspiration of scripture and the inerrancy of scripture, but we don't talk enough about the authority of scripture. Simply put, the Bible is authoritative in all that it speaks to. And it speaks to everything, either directly or indirectly. And therefore, in everything we encounter in life, we need to go to the scriptures to understand how these things should be taken. Is there a biblical basis for what I am saying? There is indeed. And that's my second point. Now you can turn to Matthew chapter 2. So I have some good news for you. Christmas Day be o- may be over, but the Christmas season is not. There is more to the Christmas story that follows the birth of Jesus. There are at least three things that happen that are part of the Christmas story that occur after Jesus is born. The first is in Luke 2, verse 21, where after eight days, Jesus is circumcised, and then he's named. And that name, of course, comes from Matthew 1, verse 21, where we're told that he was to be called Jesus. The second thing is in Luke 2, verses 22 through 38, that has to do with purification. Now, this isn't purification of Jesus. They went up to the city of Jerusalem for Mary's purification. For when a baby is born, uh, the mother was considered unclean for a period of days, actually 40 days. And then she would go to the temple and make an offering. And the firstborn would also have an offering made in his behalf. And of course, while while they are there, they encounter two Old Testament believers that were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, namely Simeon and Anna. Now, while some people may question whether those are actually part of the Christmas story itself, 
This third story, no one would question, and that is the coming of the Magi. So in Matthew chapter 2, let me read verses 1 through 6. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, I have a little bit of bad news. And it's about that nativity scene that you have, most of you, in your homes. Yeah, the, the magi don't actually belong there because they weren't there on the day that Jesus was born. Um, verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that word after gives us a clue. And then if you come over to verse 11 in chapter 2, when the wise men reach Bethlehem, they go into the house and saw the child with Mary his mother and they fell down and worshipped him. Notice, not in a stable, but in a house. Some time had passed, and they had now relocated to a house. You might wonder why. I suspect it was because they knew that they were going to go to Jerusalem for the pur purification that I mentioned from Luke 2 just a few moments ago. And it is about six miles from Bethlehem to Jerusalem as opposed to about a hundred miles from Nazareth to Jerusalem so it made sense they would stay there and fortunately were able to get out of that stable and into an actual house. But um, by the way let me mention uh, a week from this coming Tuesday our own Dan McConaughey is going to be presenting um, something that, that he has done, and I think the subject matter is what did the wise men see and when did they see it? Now, I don't know how much you know about Dan, but Dan has his PhD in Greek and ancient Syriac. And he is, um, this is, this is his territory. Uh, this is something he has focused on, devoted a lot of time to. Because these wise men came out of the part of the world where his studies focus. So this is going to be at 9 o'clock, a week from this coming Tuesday morning. Um, it will be in place of the men's Bible study, and women are welcome as well. And while you're there, you may as well stay away because the history group is going to resume. And we've been looking at a video series on... Um, decisive battles in the history of the world, which has been absolutely fascinating 
even if you're not interested in military history, these, um, these have been so helpful in filling in gaps of our own understanding of world history that this has been very, very worthwhile. So anyway, who were these wise men? Who were these magi? Well, they were advisors at the court of what we could call the Persian Empire, but to be more correct, by that time it had become the Parthian Empire. They were astronomers, they were scholars, and they were well known outside of the realms of their own land. Uh, they were held in very high reputation. It's very interesting to note that in the book of Daniel, remember, Daniel wrote from Babylon. He was part of what we call the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity. And Daniel was there in this same area when he wrote the book of Daniel. And in chapter 2, uh, we're told that after this prophecy that he'd given to King Nebuchadnezzar, the king promoted him to a very high position in his land and put him over all the wise men, all the magi. Daniel himself became a magi. So we would assume that these magi would be well familiar with the book of Daniel and with its prophecies, including Daniel chapter 9, which contains the 70 weeks of Daniel, which comes to 490 years. Now, among scholars, even within the Reformed camp, there's some disagreement as to when the 490 years begin and what they lead up to. But all would agree that, that take this literally, that it gives us a ballpark, a frame of reference for when to expect the Messiah to come. In addition to that, they may have known of the prophecy in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, which says, a star will arise in Judah. If they put these things together, and being astronomers to begin with, the stars were very important to them. And among many different cultures, something significant in the sky pertaining to stars signified the coming of a king, the birth of a king. So these magi were very, very much aware of what was happening. Now, with the Parthian Empire, um, this was a very, very large and powerful empire. It included parts of modern-day Syria, all of Iran, all of Iraq, all of Afghanistan, and parts of Pakistan and Turkestan as well. And they were constantly at war with the Roman Empire. Um, now, these magi then, uh, this raises a lot of questions, I know. If they were at war with the Roman Empire, how did they come into the Roman Empire, into Judah, which was part of the Roman Empire at the time? If they were in the capital of the empire, which was a city called Tisiphon, uh, which is loca located on the Euphrates River, about 20 miles from Babylon, 
This was about 550 miles to Bethlehem. Now, in the sources that I looked at, it's very interesting. This is a flight distance, or what we would call as the crow flies, about 550 miles. But by land, in order to travel there, it was closer to 800 to 1,000 miles. So this was quite a trip. So do you know what this means? If they could average 15 to 20 miles a day, it would have taken them 40 or 50 days to get to Bethlehem. This means they started on their journey before Mary and Joseph left Nazareth to come to Bethlehem. And that star was there all that time. Now, why didn't others see it? They probably saw it, but they didn't realize its significance. Probably didn't pay any attention to it. But I'm afraid I have a little bit more bad news for your manger scene. These magi traveled in large groups. Not likely three. Now, the Bible does not say there were three wise men. It says they presented three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But it's much more likely that these magi numbered 10, 15, 20. In addition, armed guards traveling with them for protection because there are many robbers on the roads. This was not a safe time to travel at all. And then they had their own attendants that traveled with them. This was an entire caravan passing into the Roman Empire and coming into the town of Bethlehem. And this is a major reason why on the way they stopped by to see Herod. I mean, there were no checkpoints. There was no border patrol. But a large group like this from your enemy empire doesn't just walk into your country um, w w without getting an okay. And the fact that Herod saw them immediately indicates how much Herod knew of them and respected them and was willing to talk to them. So when did they arrive in Bethlehem? That's a big question, hotly debated, uh, because Herod, the psychopath, determined to have all the baby boys up to age two killed to make sure that he killed the baby Jesus. Some scholars believe that Jesus could have been as much as two years old. I personally don't think that's the case. I think Herod figured out that his soldiers don't know that much about babies, and so to be sure they kill the right one, he erred on the side of making sure he got the one he wanted to have killed even not caring at all how much grief and misery he would cause in the town of Bethlehem. And so he had babies killed up to two years old, sadly. But traditionally, the day of Epiphany is the day that marks the coming of the wise men. That occurs on January 6th, 
which is 12 days after Christmas. Does that ring a bell? The 12 days of Christmas, that's where that comes from, from the time of Christmas up until the day of Epiphany. So you see, even traditionally, the period of celebrating Christmas was extended. And so actually, we don't need a new paradigm. What we need to do is go back to an old paradigm. Now, in light of that, I did an informal survey among some of the older folks in our congregation because I wanted to see if what I thought I remembered was actually accurate, especially with regarding the passage of time. Oftentimes, a child's perception is not the same as when he grows older. So I asked the people, the older people in our congregation, three questions. The first was, when you were a child growing up, when did you put up your Christmas tree? Nearly all of them said, somewhere between a few days before Christmas to a week, or at the most two weeks before Christmas. A couple of exceptions. One, for instance, they would go to their grandmother's and weren't sure when she set up her tree. But for almost everybody, it was much closer to Christmas. My second question was, when did you begin to celebrate Christmas? When did you really feel it was Christmas? And it was about the same time as they put up the tree. And my third question was, was there separation between Thanksgiving and the beginning of the celebration of Christmas. And this is the question that they were most emphatic about and would usually raise their voice even when they said it. Oh, yes, definitely. There was a definite space between Thanksgiving and the beginning of the celebration of Christmas, the beginning of the Christmas season. Now, contrast that to today. I don't think many of you start celebrating Christmas before Thanksgiving uh, the way commercial institutions do. But boy, the day after Thanksgiving, the decorations go up inside and out, the tree goes up. And you know, that's okay. I don't have a problem with that. My concern is what happens the day after Christmas. Now, some of you might say, but what about Advent? And that's actually making my point. What we have done is we have confused or we have equated the season of Advent with the season of celebrating Christmas. Now, can you think of any other event that you celebrate before it happens? You know, in some cultures, a wedding celebration will last a full week. But they don't celebrate before the ceremony. They celebrate for a week after the ceremony. Can you see how we have kind of been led to a different paradigm by the secular world rather than um, what is laid out in Scripture? There's every reason to continue celebrating Christmas and even more so after the event than before. So what I'm saying to you is, don't take down your Christmas tree yet. Don't take down your decorations. Don't stop singing Christmas carols. 
But keep on having Christmas parties. Keep on celebrating. Continue to enjoy this season that we're in. And I would definitely make a case for the coming of the Magi to be a very, very crucial part of the celebration of Christmas for two reasons. Everybody else that we see in the Christmas story, and by the way, the Christmas story already is a, like a multifaceted gem. It has so many rich components. We can think of the angel that visited Mary and told her that she would conceive a child by the Holy Spirit. And then there's the story of Joseph, who, what a, what a model of a man, who loved Mary enough that legally he could have put her to shame publicly, but he was going to divorce her privately. And by the way, being betrothed was so formal that it took a divorce to break it. And then, of course, we have the story of the coming of the shepherds. It's, it's just such a, a marvelous, beautiful story. We have the, and before that, we have this arduous trip of Joseph and Mary, a woman who is due to give birth at any time. And they come to Bethlehem. And you would think, for a regal birth like this, they would deserve the best suite and the best hotel in all of Bethlehem. I believe I've seen a pageant where they go from one end to another to another and they're told no room, no room, no room. The Bethlehem Hilton was filled. The Bethlehem Holiday Inn was filled. Even the Best Western, they had taken their vacancy sign down weeks ago because everyone had come for the census. The same thing that brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. But it wasn't that way. Bethlehem was a little town. One inn. They were lucky to have that. And of course there was no room. So they ended up in a stall with the animals. And that's where the King of Kings and Lord of Lords was born. But everybody we've seen in the Christmas story so far has been Jewish. But these magi represent the Gentiles, showing that this Christ child came not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. And then, as Dennis pointed out to us a couple weeks ago, the shepherds, probably my favorite part of the Christmas story, which I'd love to elaborate on, but we don't have time this morning. The shepherds in their rank in Jewish society was lower than the tax collectors and just above the dung cleaners. That's getting pretty low. So here we have represented the lowest classes by the shepherds and then these magi who come who are the highest ranks in their society. Upper echelon showing that Jesus came for all, the rich to the poor. Yes, these magi occupy a very important part of the Christmas story. But is this really all that important? 
some people might say, Tim, you know, by referring to Romans 12 2, you're pulling out some pretty big guns. All for the sake of the celebration of Christmas. Is this really that important? I believe it is. In John 10.10, Jesus said, I came that you might have life and might have it abundantly. Now, that abundance uh, literally means exceeding, far above, in excess, all around. It's, it's a word that refers to much in excess. That's the kind of life that God wants us to have, not in a material sense, but in a spiritual sense. And certainly, joy is a big part of that. Do you know that God wants you to be happy? God wants you to be full of joy? God wants you to enjoy your life? But this world is tough. It's hard out there. It's difficult. All of us are besieged by all kinds of problems. And God has given this season to us as a gift. Can you think of anything to be more joyful about than the coming of the eternal God into our world born as a baby? Can you see why God would want to have that extended for a period of time as a relief from what we go through the rest of the year? Not that we escape it this time of year. Not that we don't have joy in the rest of the year. But there is something special about this time of year that even the culture, the secular culture around us, is touched. Don't you find people in general to be friendlier, happier? It's just a different time. And God wants us to experience that. And God wants us to have it. And certainly as much after the birth of Jesus, if not more so. Now, that, that abundant life certainly includes eternal life. But it also looks to this life as well. And by the way, this is a whole other sermon in itself. But those of you who know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, do you realize you've already begun your eternal life? It's not something future. It's not just in heaven. You're already beginning to live it now. So the joy that is a part of Christmas is what God intends for us to have. And the third part, the third change in our thinking we need to make is to realize that the Christmas story is really part of a larger story, which is the gospel. You could say the Christmas story is chapter one of the gospel story. So every time you think about the gospel or talk about the gospel or share the gospel with someone else, included in that is Christmas. Because without Christmas, there would have been no Good Friday and no Easter. And if there were no Good Friday and Easter, there would be no point in Christmas. 
So Christmas is never very far away from Easter. The two are closely connected. A few weeks ago, our choir sang an anthem that was based on a sermon by John Donne that he delivered on Christmas Day in 1626 at London's St. Paul's Cathedral. And I'd like to, sh- and in that sermon and in this song are points of comparison between Christmas and Good Friday. And I'd like, in closing, I'd like to share some of those with you. Jesus had a manger for his birth, and that was as unfitting as was a cross for his death. The straw in the manger could be as sharp to his tender flesh as were the thorns in his crown at the crucifixion. A manger, a feeding trough, held the bread of life. And the babe and and joyful visitors welcomed his birth while angry crowds would later demand his death. The babe who was born in Bethlehem became the man of sorrows. But the good news is that the story doesn't end with Good Friday because after that comes Easter and the resurrection. These two events are by far the greatest events in the history of all mankind. They are in a class all of them, all by themselves. But when they come, they should be our greatest source of joy. Something to be continued and to be enjoyed. Now how do you do that? Let me just suggest, if need be, every day at least until Epiphany, remind yourself that it's still in the Christmas season. And as I said, leave your decorations up, continue to sing Christmas carols, have parties, and just enjoy the season. Let's pray. Our Father, we pause to give you praise for this time of year. And Father, we pray that you would remind us, that you would etch into our hearts not to sell ourselves short, not to give up on this season, not, not to cut it short, but to allow its full duration, that we might have the fullness of joy that you intend for us to have. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.